Okay, so we're going we're gonna to take a look at Acts chapter 9 today, the conversion of Paul. Uh, the way I would like to look at it is in a couple of different directions. So one is uh, what Luther called the cruciform pattern of life. So for the Christian, uh, if we are to be Christ's, then we, we live in the cruciform pattern uh, which is just as we see with Jesus on the cross. And we will see that with Paul today. Uh, also, I want to talk about it in terms of uh, suffering and uh, wounds. Because so often in life, uh, we are all affected by things that happen to us. We, we are beset by our own sins and our own failures, the things we've done or said that has inflicted pain and then we also suffer some of the residual of that pain. Um, if it's our sin, we, we carry it around. And one of the things that the devil likes to do is keep us focused on the things that are killing us. And so, so there's two sides to it. One side is the things that we do, the sin that we commit. But then there's also the other side where it's sins committed against us. And if it's our own sin, then we, we feel kind of a just guilt for, for what we've done. But what is also very difficult is the things that are done against us. And then... We feel it, we experience it, we often um, maybe feel justified in, in feeling the pain from those things, but there's a perspective that's really important. The perspective is, if we continue to gaze upon our wounds without end, uh, that will kill us. It will destroy our souls. And so instead, what we are to do is Jesus is trying to get us to look. We, can, we confess our sins or we come to terms with sins committed against us. The goal is to look into the wounds of Jesus. And so our life, our meditation should be on the wounds of Christ. Now, think about Paul. We all know, we all know the account. Um, it's a very important account. Uh, in the book of Acts itself, Paul's conversion is told three times. The first time Luke tells it, but then the other two times Paul tells it. And you think about that in terms of a book of the Bible that one person's story, conversion, would be told over and over again. It must be pretty important. So let's take a look at Acts chapter 9, and let's, let's go through this and see what's happening, because you get the sense of the church's life in it. So Acts 9, starting at the first verse... But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest 
and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus, And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, And he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. So there are several things. There there are themes running throughout this, this conversion story where, first of all, Paul is on his own road. You know, there's a lot of language in the Bible for road. So there's this theme, this Hebrew theme, and it's called halakha. And what it is is, It's all these symbols of road, a light for your path, feet, and journeying. And it comes up over and over and over again. For example, Psalm 1 that opens up the 150 Psalms starts off by talking about the two roads. So like the first three verses of Psalm 1 talk about the way of righteousness And then the next two verses talk about the way of wickedness. And then the last verse of Psalm 1 sums up the two roads. So these kinds of things have an impact then when you read an account like the conversion of Paul. Because if you look at the very beginning, the first thing it says is Paul or Saul still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord went to the high priest. So he's so he's breathing threats and murder. But then if you read on, look at verse 2. 
and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Then verse three, now as he went on his way. Now notice, Christians, people were of the way. That's the word road in Greek or in Hebrew. It's road or way. And so before the Christians were called Christians, they were called people of the way or in Greek, the hados. So there's the people going the way of Jesus. But then notice what it says here in verse three. He went on his way. So it's giving you this symbolic picture back to Psalm 1 that there are two ways, there are two roads, two ways of journeying. And by the way, this whole theme of road and way and feet and light and path and journey comes out in John's gospel, where? With the washing of the disciples' feet. And remember, Peter's like, oh no, no, I I need to wash you. And Jesus says, nope, it has to be this way. And then Peter, you know, he doesn't get it again. And he's like, well, then all of me. And Jesus is like, no, just your feet. That's good enough. Why? Because it's all about setting the feet to journey in the right way. And so when you think about it in terms of suffering or our wounds, if we meditate only upon our wounds, then we get this myopic vision and we, we could end up either despairing or we can turn and bring judgment on people around us. But what gets lost with an endless gazing upon our wounds is the, we lose the sense of mercy. And so this is Paul, this is Saul, right? As he's journeying on his way, um, He's, he's, he thinks he's doing what's righteous and good. He knows the Old Testament. He knows the, the old Jewish way front and back, but he doesn't understand the ways of Jesus. And so as he goes on his way, then there's a light from heaven and it flashes around him and he falls to the ground and he, he goes blind. Now, if you look at one of the other accounts of this, if you look at the handout, if you look on the second page, verse three, <clears throat> a light shone around him from heaven. So here's this sense of light, like, John eight twelve. again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of light. Look at Job three. Why is light given to him who is in misery and life to the bitter in soul? And then Job three twenty three. why is light given to a man whose way is hidden, whom God has hedged in? And so, you know, the sense of light is, Even in the midst of our wounds, Jesus shines the light to turn us away from the things that kill us, that we may find peace. Like Zechariah chapter three in the Old Testament is I think one of the clearest 
pictures of the gospel. <clears throat> and it's the picture of Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord. And of course, Luther says the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament is Jesus, pre-incarnate Christ. And, you know, just think, so think to yourself, okay, you're going to come and stand before the Lord himself. How do you want to present yourself? But as as good as, as well as you could, right? You want to be in your, your Sunday best. You want everything to look just great. The problem is, is with our wounds, wounds of the past, our sins, our failures, because we always see our wounds, we never feel like we could approach the Lord in that way. And, but Joshua the high priest comes and stands before the angel of the Lord and he's going to get a commission to oversee the building of the temple. But then what happens? Satan is off to the side accusing Joshua because he's in a filthy robe. And what is on his robe is the stuff that he would gather if he walked through sewage. And so he's standing there, and Satan is going, in, in essence, Satan is going, look at his wounds. Look at his failures. Look at all the things he's done. Look at all the things he's left undone. How could you ever have this guy be the person to oversee the building of your holy temple? Because, see, the thing with the devil is, the devil knows God's word. <clears throat> you know, like <clears throat> James says in his epistle, even the demons believe and tremble. So they know the scriptures. They know the benchmark. They know how things are supposed to look, but they don't understand the gospel. And so evil will always accuse you of your failures. And you know, if you read on in that Zechariah 3 story and account, the Lord does not entertain the accusations of Satan. He silences him. And so this is, when you think about your pain, think about how Jesus deals with it. Jesus doesn't keep beating you up he forgives it and then wants you to turn your gaze or, as this account shows, turn your feet in a certain direction and walk in the mercy, the love, and the light of the Savior. And these Job, <clears throat> excuse me, these Job passages are beautiful because light is given to those in misery. Light is given to those whose way is hidden. And, you know, in, it's so often that in American Christianity, there's this mistaken feeling that we must get ourselves in order first and then the Lord will take us in. But the Lord takes people in when they're at the bottom. And this is, this is Paul's situation. I mean, you know, think about the young church. Christianity was new. Paul's going around persecuting and having Christians killed. He becomes a Christian 
And then what does he do? But he ends up gathering around with the other Christians to have Eucharist and study God's word. It is most likely that the people that he stood around the altar with were relatives and friends of people he had killed. Think about that for just a second. If somebody like that came in and wanted to be around the altar here and they had done things to your family members and your friends, that'd be a tough pill to swallow, right? But see, the thing is, is like wounds, wounds are painful. If we've done it, we can't stand to look at it, but we can't look away. But if, it's, if they are wounds inflicted against us, we can be justified in our anger for those wounds. But see, it's that, that anger that just can destroy a soul, can destroy a person. And become like Paul, breathing murder and violence. But in Acts 22, which is one of Paul's tellings of his conversion, he said, or it says, about noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone about me. So what is happening in Paul's account is he goes blind at noon, darkness. Now, where does that happen in the Gospels? The crucifixion. Darkness at noon. So what is happening here is Paul has his, his pain, his wounds, all the things that are going on with him, but slowly in this account... Jesus is turning Paul away from his wounds and into the wounds of Jesus. And it is in the wounds of Jesus that there will be life. But then you go on and verse four, falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He's not... Jesus is not saying, why are you persecuting my Christians? Why are you persecuting my people? Why are you persecuting the church? No. He identifies the suffering that the Christians bear with himself. And Jesus then joins in in the things that we go through, which is a great comfort in the midst of our pain. And there's other places in the scriptures too, like Luke 9, 29. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. So, you know, what happens with Jesus and Paul on the road is like another transfiguration account. Just as Jesus was transfigured on the mount for Peter, James, and John to see, now Paul sees it too. So he's being drawn in to the life of Jesus.
If you look on then, he says, rise and enter the city and you will be told what you are to do. The men saw nothing, they heard, but they lift Saul up. Now, what is important in this, and the Greek text pulls some different things out, like in verse 6, who are you, or verse 5, who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Verse 6, but rise and go into the city, and you shall be told what you are to do. And then in verse 8, Saul was raised up from the earth. It's technical stuff, but the Greek words are resurrection words. And especially in verse 8, it's the, he was raised up from the earth. So it's, Paul is going through death and resurrection in this account. And then as he's blind, he's how many days without food and sight? Three. So here's another. So what is that like? But that's like the passion of Jesus, right? And this too, by the way, this account of the conversion of Paul was very important in early Christian catechesis and instruction into the faith. Because there were periods for the catechumens uh, of fasting and sort of pushing off the things of the flesh and the things of the world. So what you see, so there's like two levels of what's going on in this text. One level is you have this historical account of Paul encountering Jesus and going through suffering in order to be drawn into the life of faith. The other side of it is it's spiritual instruction for us. So when we are struggling, if we are suffering, um, it's healthy to, for us to look into the holy things of Jesus and to fast for a time. Fast and pray and slow down to let Jesus do his thing because that's what the three days is without food and without sight for Paul. This is a time of spiritual contemplation to discern what road am I on What in the world just happened to me, right? And where am I going? Where am I being led? And this compares, by the way, with language and this resurrection language compares with language in 1 Corinthians 15.4, which I can read to you. Starts off really in in 1 Corinthians 15.3 where Paul says, I gave to you in the first instance that which I received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures and he was seen by Cephas and then by the twelve. I mean, it's the same... Word. It's the same language in the Greek text where 
Paul is participating in the passion of Christ. So, you know, you think about these things on one level and you're like, this is a great historical text for the church. It is showing us where Paul goes from here and and why, you know, he does so much in the book of Acts. But it's also very central to our lives that this is an example for us that in your pain, in your suffering, in your in the midst of your own wounds, Jesus will draw you out if you rest in his passion. So let him place you into his wounds because that's where you live, is in the wounds of Christ. And if you are in the wounds of Christ, then you are new, new creation, new life, new beginning, new hope, enduring hope. And so this is what characterizes the church. And you think about the church's history and you think about all the martyrs and you know all the things that have happened throughout church history. And you see that how, how could they endure that? You know, how could, you know, the majority of the, the initial disciples and apostles were martyred except for Judas who betrayed Jesus and then John who lived to be an old man? You know, how could they, go, how could they do that? Well, it's because Jesus and his wounds bring us joy in the midst of the world's trouble. And gives us uh, this enduring hope. So Acts 26.16. So this is another account. Where Paul tells, tells his conversion. And it says there. Rise up and stand on your feet. So it's this. You're going to walk the way of the apostles. You're going to walk the way that I walk. And so it goes along. Paul must participate in the death and resurrection of Jesus. And then I have a note here, Isaiah 59, verses 8 through 10. It says the way, so listen to the language. The way, so it's the same word for road. The way of peace they do not know. And there is no justice in their paths. They have made their roads crooked. No one who treads on them knows peace. Therefore, justice is far from us. And righteousness does not overtake us. We hope for light. And behold, darkness. And for brightness. But we walk in gloom. We grope for the wall like the blind. We grope like those who have no eyes. Does this sound familiar? We stumble at noon in the twilight. Is this talking about Paul? Among those in full vigor, we are like dead men. I mean, that sounds an awful lot like the conversion of Paul, doesn't it? 
And, you know, Isaiah is thought, is said to be like the gospel of the Old Testament. It's just full and rich of New Testament imagery and Jesus imagery. Then we get to verse 10. How would you like to be Ananias? Because he knows. He's like, this guy kills Christians. And you're telling me to receive this guy in? You know, what did I fall off the stupid truck or what? <laughs> you know? And so you just, I can't imagine what boldness that would take to be able to be like, okay, Jesus, I'm going to trust you on this one. But here's the thing. Have you ever wondered when you read this account, why did they go to a road called Straight? Isn't that a weird name for a road? So here's the thing. Back to Hebrew. Okay. So in the Old Testament, there's a place in Amos. I think it's like Amos chapter 3. And it says, um, God does nothing without revealing his secret to the prophets. So the word secret, so just follow me on this for a second. The word secret in Hebrew is sowed, but what it means secret, but it also means friendship. So like we sang the hymn, What a Friend We Have in Jesus today. So to be a friend of God in the Old Testament way is to have God reveal his word. To you, okay. There's another concept that goes with that. So wherever you see secret or friendship, where God reveals His word, then there's also another theme, which in Hebrew is yashar. But what it means is, it's up. It means upright, or it means straight. Okay. So like in Isaiah, for example, and a couple places in the Psalms. It'll say, in that day, I will bring low the hills and I will raise up the valleys. Have you ever heard that language? That's the concept of straight road. Okay. So, so what that's saying is, okay, God comes. He reveals his secrets from the depths of heaven. And when he reveals his secrets, the roads become straight and then we can walk. So in Acts chapter 9, we have both Hebrew concepts in the chapter. Because here's Paul, right? He's got papers to go round up Christians. And what does Jesus do? Slam right in the middle of the road. He reveals himself. So he reveals his secrets to Paul. Strikes him blind, he can't see, which is the condition that he was really already in by way of the soul, right? And then he's going to go to a, a street called Straight. And it is there that the word of God is finally going to make sense to Paul. And it's going to happen in a certain way. It's going to happen... When Ananias lays hands on Paul and the scales fall from his eyes and then he's baptized. Now, think about this for just a second, okay? Have you ever wondered why did 
Paul, or why did Jesus send Paul to Ananias? Because Jesus, Jesus struck him blind. Jesus could give him his sight back and say, okay, now do you see? Now do you get it? Okay, all right, let's walk. And you can walk with me just as, as the disciples did. But no, what does he do? He sends him to the church to be healed. So another theme running in this text is Paul, though a very intelligent, well-studied individual, was alone. He was isolated in his judgment. And it is in seeing, in seeing Jesus, that we are joined to holy community. We are joined to the church. And there is this great quote from Augustine at the bottom of page four. And you know, Augustine, he was bishop like from 398 to 430 AD. So he was early. But look at this quote. Let us be on our guard against all such dangerous temptations to pride and let us rather reflect on how the same Apostle Paul, although he had been struck down and instructed by the divine voice from heaven, was still sent to a man to receive the sacraments and be joined to the church. And how the centurion Cornelius, although it was an angel who told him his prayers had been heard and his almsgiving acknowledged, was still handed over to Peter to be instructed and baptized. And it could all, of course, have been done by the angel, but then no respect would have been shown to our human status if God appeared to be unwilling to have his word administered to us by other human beings. We need each other, and that's the church. To be gathered together around the altar, to be joined in community, to have pastors to hear you talk about your pain and your wounds is to have a tangible mercy and grace among us. Because it's true, isn't it? We can be doing great and then we have a quiet moment. I mean, think about Americans. One of the things that is the hardest for us in fast-paced America is to have too much quiet time, slow time, downtime, because then you think. And you start thinking about all the things that trouble you. And you can get lost in the abyss. But then you have the church. You have the sacraments that give what they promise, but then also are reminders of what you have been given. And then you have those around you who are there to remind you, look to Jesus, look to the cross, look to the wounds of your Savior who has paid for all of that and heals you and continues to work to heal you. Paul, he knew what it felt like. He, uh, on the... on. On page five at the top, 
Acts 22, verses 19 and 20. His wounds were evident to him because he says, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another, I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. So he knew, right? It was there. But Jesus turns him and loves him and blesses him. And the same is true for you. And, you know, Paul, so here's, here's one other thing. So much to talk about here. So just briefly, so I don't forget or lose sight of this. Ananias lays hands upon Paul. And says, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. So to see, to have the eyes illumined, is to receive the Holy Spirit and to have faith. And then after Ananias lays hands upon him, he rose, again, resurrection language, and was baptized. And then taking food, he was strengthened. So the time of testing was over. The time of the fast had ended. And he enters into the baptismal gift of the new day and resurrection. Paul goes on and he, 2 Corinthians is, is his cross-bearing epistle where he really lays out so many things that he went through. The point comes at the end in 2 Corinthians 12 where he talks about the thorn in his flesh the messenger of Satan that buffeted him. And the Greek is like a boxer that just kind of goes like this. Buffeting is just like pummeling, just kind of going like this. And Paul asks Jesus three times to take the thorn away, right? The thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan. But what? how does Jesus respond? My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And so what does Paul say? All the more gladly will I boast in my infirmities for when I'm weak that I'm strong. For in my sufferings the power of Christ rests upon me. The word rests is it's a Hebrew concept to tabernacle. So the power of Christ is like in that Old Testament when the presence of God would come down over the mercy seat and rest upon the people and the people would gather for blessing and all was right when the Lord would come. So what Paul is indicating in 2 Corinthians 12 is that it is particularly in our struggles where Jesus is the closest to us and we learn the most. We become wise when in our struggle, the word of God is put with it, when we look, when we find ourselves resting in the wounds of Jesus, things become clear. And as things become clear, we are then able to help other people. And so this is where the church comes in. Like in 2 Corinthians, 
at the beginning, let's see here. Everything that Paul says and writes about is influenced by his Damascus Road experience. The fact that it was mentioned three times, told three times in Acts is central to Paul and his apostolic task. And so when you read like 2 Corinthians 1, for example, you think about it. So he, here's what he says. 2 Corinthians 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, in his wounds, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. It's quite possible that when Paul writes those words, he's thinking about his suffering and his pain and how he was sent to Ananias and to the church who doesn't reject him and cast him aside and hurl judgment upon him, but they took him in and they loved him. And that love and that receiving in the midst of his struggle and his pain was like a salve upon his wounds. So when you think about the wounds of Christ, you also think about the church. Because we all together rest in those wounds. And as, our, as the salve is placed upon our souls, we're then learning how to apply it to the wounds of others so that joy may abound in the victories of our Savior. So let us pray. Heavenly Father, we give thanks for your mercies and for the instruction which you give to us that as we see Paul's conversion, we find within our own lives your boundless love and that salve that comforts us and brings us the same joy and the same light of the eternal day which Paul experienced and shares with us. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. And receive the benediction. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord look upon you with favor and give you peace.